Hi, I'm Leah Lane, an award-winning travel writer and author of Places I Remember, Tales, Truths, Delights from 100 Countries. On this podcast, we share conversations with travelers about fascinating destinations and memorable experiences around the world. Parks around the world provide mental and physical refuge, places to escape for fresh air, exercise, and family fun. Parks are essential to our well-being, and the recent surge of park development from reclaimed lands offers us much to celebrate. Parks are becoming proactive, dynamic green spaces. Renewed landscapes offer economic revitalization, large-scale environmental improvement, and public places to seek out as travelers. Many are living landscapes using sustainable construction and maintenance. Innovative design helps counter climate change with wetlands that absorb floodwaters and plants that heal land and water damaged by industry, as well as habitats where animal species are welcome and protected. In fact, landscape architects have been referred to as the first environmentalists. Our guests are architectural historian and founder of the Architectural History Foundation, Victoria Newhouse, and Alex Pisha, a senior landscape architect at Sawyer Burson Architecture and Landscape Architecture. They are the authors of Parks of the 21st Century, Reinventing Landscapes, Reclaimed Territories, published by Rizzoli, New York. Welcome to Places I Remember, Victoria and Alex. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, Thank you. Well, your new book presents 52 parks in the United States, Mexico, Canada, Europe, and China that have turned to spoiled and polluted land, including former factories, railroads, and industrial waterfronts, into beneficial landscapes. The book offers detailed history, 200 color photos and illustrations, and site maps. And you visited all the sites. Tell us, how long did it take to compile and write the book? Well, we were working on it for about five years. And did you work on it constantly or? No, it was it was constant. Yeah, yeah. Was there a general theme you discovered among all those parks? Well, I think Alex can answer that better than I can, uh, because certainly all of the parks we chose, and we chose them with this very much in mind, addressed aspects of climate change. So Alex, yeah. you want to talk about some of the water control yeah, and also all of the parks in the um, in the book are these sort of former brown or brownfield sites, these sort of polluted, mm-hmm. spoiled sites, and so that's that's something that's really connecting them all. But yeah, as Victoria mentioned, almost all of the parks address water pollution, habitat creation, things like this, and so really turning these despoiled areas into really vibrant ecological communities. I noticed just in reading it that the parks extend through and around urban centers. They're like breathing spaces. That was a very interesting thing to see all through the world. The same need to to find places to relax and find greenery in an Mm -hmm. urban center. I just want to mention, Alex, that, that all of the parks are in cities. So for someone interested in visiting any of them, these cities all have the attraction of very sophisticated cultural facilities, wonderful restaurants, entertainment, theater, concerts, that kind of thing. Besides the parks, you have the cities. So it's a total vacation. You have a green space to get to as well. Or you're saying it's in the parks itself. There's entertainment within the parks. Sometimes they're in the parks for sure, too. There are cafes and 
you know, a lot of the parks we visited in China have different events going on in the parks, of course, because a lot of these are, you know, former industrial sites. So, Well, in your book, you've covered 52 parks worldwide, which you've divided into several categories. We'll talk about each category and please choose one or two parks that best represent it. Let's start with railroad parks. They're connecting neighborhoods and providing public space. Maybe the most famous example is the High Line in New York, which was built and opened in 2009 and now attracts nearly 8 million visitors a year. It offers open space. And the renewed landscapes offer economic revitalization and large-scale environmental improvement as well. So tell us more about this trend in other cities. Well, in Detroit, uh, actually, there is a, a former railroad line that has been transformed into a park. And that particular park, it's called the DeQuindra Cut, was a very important inspiration for the book because we had heard about it, the planning of this park which took place actually at about the same time as the planning for the High Line, which is, of course, much more famous. But the Kinder Cut was a very, very important effort to do the same kind of thing. And in Detroit, which is a city, as we all know, that has had a lot of financial problems, the park was a connector between different neighborhoods, a great stimulus to the general effort to uh, revive the city. Well, in episode 10, we talked with Meg Daly, founder of The Underline, which goes underneath the metro for 10 miles in Miami. And the same thing is happening. It's very close to where I live. Two miles are open right now, but eventually there'll be 10 miles all the way to South Miami to Dadeland. And it's become a very popular place to just walk and relax. There are butterflies and artworks, and it's just a wonderful addition to Miami. Yeah, well, I was going to say one of the great things about the, the Kendra Cut is how it's become a really venue for urban art, for the display of urban art. And it's really wonderful to see the community kind of come together around this. And so as you walk along it, there's these amazing sort of graffiti murals on the former piers, uh, railroad bridges, and they do different exhibits and festivals throughout the year to really showcase this this culture. It's it's really fantastic. Well, there's another kind of uh, parkland, highway cap. Tell us what that is and how it's being turned into parkland. Well, I think more and more uh, communities are losing patience with highways that cut through their neighborhoods uh, with noise and pollution. There is a tremendous trend now around the world to cover uh, some of these highways. And one of the most interesting that we visited was in Holland, and the designers there created park-like, very, very wide bridges over a, a very, very busy highway that did compromise the quality of a suburb outside of Utrecht. We just spoke to someone about Holland, and, and they're so ahead of everyone in water improvement. You know, they're the ones we go to. So I'm sure that they are excellent in all areas of ecology. They're, they're well ahead of the rest of the world in many ways. Let me ask you about airports and landscaping them because you want them to be pleasing from the sky as well as the ground because people are coming into them. Tell me about that. Sure. So these were these were actually all former airports. So they're no longer in use. And one of the more interesting ones I think that we visited is the Alter Flugplatz outside of Frankfurt, Germany. And it's a former military base that the designers took a, a very sort of minimalist strategy 
what they decided to do was break up the tarmac into varying sizes, shards really, in an effort to allow self-seeding plant species kind of take hold within these crevices and further change the, the physical environment, I would say. So it's an example of rural ecologies, the idea of plant communities going into areas of disturbance. So if you think of like a forest fire, for example, some of those first pioneer species to come through, these are examples of rural ecologies. And so it's this really kind of fun design where the actual design concept is using these shards, the slight breaking up of the topography as the design mechanism, as the mechanism for growth. And so, yeah, so what, what's been fascinating to see is how that site has evolved where when it was first opened, you could still see quite a bit of these shards. The plant material, you know, was quite young. And then when Victoria and I went, these trees have grown to be 30, 40 feet tall. It's a little bit like you're in a cathedral with the birches and the poplars rising above you. Spaces that I remember seeing photographed 10 years ago just don't exist anymore. Nature has reclaimed it. It's just beautiful. Uh, I'd just like to add one thing, which is that it was there in this Frankfurt Park that we first started to notice a trend, which is that many, many landscape architects are allowing self-propagation instead of designing a lot of flower beds and lawns, and all of which seem somewhat old-fashioned now. They just let nature take over. The result is really very attractive and very appealing. It's also a good example of like allowing a park or the design to have an indeterminate future or unprescribed really by the designer, where it's constantly evolving as opposed to projects like the High Line that have a very specific plant palette and strategy. And if something dies, it's replaced in kind. This allows for things to evolve naturally. Well, in episode 39, we talked about Singapore's Jewel Changi Airport. That's a different sort of beauty. Yes, Shanghai, which now has two huge airports, both designed by very famous architects. So where this little dinky airport was in Shanghai, which has become totally obsolete now with the growth of the city and the growth of travel into that city, they have created right in the city amongst the bicycle paths and the automobile paths. And they have created this really lovely park that is very successful. Yeah, Shukui Runway Park. Yeah. Sounds wonderful. Yeah. Now... There's waterside industry. The post-industrial era has seen the demolition or relocation of factories around the world, many on riverfronts, and they leave behind heavily polluted sites. Rehabilitation into green spaces makes riversides accessible to the public for the first time in maybe 100 years. Tell us more about this. Do you want to talk about that, Alex? Yeah, I think, you know, with a lot of, you know, as with industry, a lot of industry was located along the riverside as a result of needing to connect to transportation networks, shipping and things like that. So for a lot of cities, the U.S. included, waterfronts were totally uh, cut off from the populations. They were sites of dirty wharfs and things like that. So what we were looking at is the cities really saying, okay, these natural features are really assets and really should be cleaned up, should really be celebrated worldwide, really. And so one of the, for me anyway, one of the more interesting parks that's very simple, actually, is the Parc Angelique in Bordeaux, uh, France, where the designers are not necessarily naive enough to say that this broad swath of land will always remain a park. Rather, they are accounting for future development on what is very expensive land in Bordeaux and setting up a park as a frame for future infrastructure to go in. I think other 
parks that we looked at, Renaissance Park, that is a former refrigeration factory and has incredibly contaminated soils, adopted strategies of turning this back into a riparian ecology. This is in Chattanooga. And it has this like amazing effect on the community and providing more public green space in a city that really lacks access to that. How about an inland industry? Some of these sites inland that are brown water and so forth that have been fixed. I'd like to just add one other thing about the Riverside Parks, which is that both in Shanghai and New York, there are series of parks along the riverside. So you have miles of parks with pedestrian areas, of course, but also bicycle paths. And they create kind of green chains along the riverside, which is really interesting. I think that's going to happen more and more. But in terms of inland parks, uh, one of the more interesting we saw was in Manchuria, northern China, in a city called Changchung, where a water ecology park has been created on the site of a treatment plant, a water treatment plant that the Japanese had built in the 1930s. Interesting. I know I've been to a little town in north central Florida called Gainesville, and they have a park called Depot Park. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but that was a railroad stopping and it was off limits for so many years. It's become the central park of the town. It's amazing how it's changed the town and that's taken maybe 10 years to get it done. Tell me about quarries. Hundreds of thousands of quarries penetrate the earth and some date back over 2 million years. And you mine substances like marble and limestone and precious metals and building materials. But what are some quarries that have been reclaimed for parkland? One of the most unusual we found, where was it? The Pacific Quarry Garden. Quarry Garden, yes. In in Shanghai, yeah, at the Shanghai Botanic Garden. But I was thinking also in the U.S. of the Pacific Northwest where... Oh, Thomas Wales. The Thomas Wales. In Seattle. In Seattle, exactly, which is a tiny, tiny little park. But it's a wonderful example of how even a very, very small area can be uh, successful in terms of a green space. There had been, unbelievably, I think it was a gravel quarry there, Mm -hmm. which is surprising because it really is in the middle of 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 the city. And it became obsolete. It ran out of uh, material to be quarried. And they had the, the excellent idea of creating a park there with the help of a local artist who designed these large umbrella-like sculptures that dot the park. So it really is a kind of almost like a, a, <laughs> a fantastic work of art. We really enjoyed it. I know travelers are familiar with Bouchard Gardens in on Victoria Island, yes, Vancouver. Yes. And I, I believe that was a quarry at one point from an, another century, but it's a fantastically popular garden mm-hmm. for world yes. travelers. Yes, yes. Now tell me about strongholds. I love the term. It conjures up historic forts and defensive walls, and it's one of the oldest types of repurposed infrastructure for parks. What are a few of these in the 21st century that have been turned into parks? I think one of my favorites in the book actually is Lorsch Abbey in uh, Lorsch, uh, Germany. That's a um, former monastic complex. It was a church, uh, monastery, and that sort of thing that it was long destroyed, I think, by Napoleon. Right, Victoria? I think so. Yeah. And so the idea there was to sort of reveal the site's history without really... Um, affecting the sort of archaeological legacy of like disturbing the ground plane too much. And so 
they create these indentations that suggest the former massing of the buildings and the walls through these subtle maneuvers of the lawns. So it's it's the you know flat lawns that slope down slightly to reveal impressions of where these these structures used to be, and then these really subtle paths that let you go around the perimeter and they recreated a medieval physic garden within it as well and then you know you have these 14th century walls surrounding you it's really spectacular site it's such a very quiet park with very minimal you know planting and really elegantly executed Fascinating. Um, yeah. Now, you write that parks are never completed and flexibility is a key note in design. So what do you see happening for the rest of this century in regard to parks around the world? People often forget that it's not enough to create a park. You have to maintain it. So for the future, I think for the survival of all of these parks, maintenance is so important. We noticed in China that in spite of the wealth of that country and the enormous amount of money that has been spent on creating new parks, that a number of these parks, even relatively new ones, were already beginning to show signs of deterioration, like some of the the wooden walkways were falling apart. Some of the little pavilions needed reparation. So I think that's one thing that is terribly important for the future. But I also think that climate change and as part of climate change, water control and other aspects of uh, environmental sustainability are going to become more and more important elements in the design of parks in the future. Yeah, I think building on that, what we saw a lot is that these parks are really actively addressing climate change and natural disasters. So parks that we visited, like in New York, Hunters Point South, it's a beautiful space, but it's also really heavily engineered and designed to armor the coastline and really protect the neighborhood from things like storm surge, which it was being built during Hurricane Sandy, and it worked exactly as designed protecting the entire area from mass flooding. So I think that that's what we're seeing. We're going to be seeing a lot is that these parks are really being actively designed for climate change. Yeah, very important. Well, the name of the podcast is Places I Remember. So Victoria and Alex, would you each give us a special memory from compiling this book? And we'll start with Victoria. One of my outstanding memories of the whole experience uh, was in Changchung, which I mentioned earlier, the park in northern China, where we had an amazing food experience. We had found in our travels that we really didn't have enough time to go into restaurants. So we started going to food markets. And the food market that we went to in Changchung was without a doubt the most spectacular with all sorts of exotic foods, duck that had been simmered in tea, and on and on with one thing more exotic than the next. And it was very good food and a lot of fun to, to visit. Yeah. Uh, food, food makes a great memory always. Okay, Alex, how about yeah. your special The memory? food was always amazing uh, in China. But I remember part of the process, you know, we would, of course, interview the park's designers and things like that. But we'd also interview park users. And for me, that was some of my you know, favorite memories was talking to them. And I remember in one park when we were in Tianjin, the wetland park, we spoke with an elderly gentleman about his experiences and what he thought of the park. And he was talking about how he remembers when it was the despoiled urban landfill and eyesore. And now it's been transformed into this amazing space and that he actually takes a 
two hour long bus ride just to go to the park weekly. And it was, it was really like kind of touching to hear. And I think in that same visit, we met a grandmother with her granddaughter who was thrilled with the park, loved to go see the wildlife, the geese. And she grabbed my hand and tried to drag me to see the geese and things like this too. I mean, she was really charming. Just getting to know the locals and talking with them and really understanding like what these spaces mean to them was really, I think, like a highlight of these trips for me. Well, that's wonderful about a park. You get to meet people while yeah, you're there. Yeah, such social spaces. Absolutely. They can be quiet spaces and they can be social spaces, but they're mm-hmm. wonderful spaces. Well, we're in the midst of a worldwide golden age of park creation, and you've given us powerful transformations of former factories, railroads, and industrial waterfronts turned into gorgeous landscapes cherished by many millions. This gives us more reasons to travel and hope that we can still effectively combat climate change while enjoying the beauty of our world. So thank you again, Victoria Newhouse and Alex Pisha, authors of the illustrated Parks of the 21st Century, Reinventing Landscapes, Reclaimed Territories. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lee. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to our award-winning podcast. We've recorded over 100 episodes of Places I Remember, so follow us on any podcast app. And new monthly episodes are also on YouTube with gorgeous video. My book, Places I Remember, is available in print and Kindle, and I read the audio version. Follow my travel writing at Forbes.com. Contact me at the links in the show notes or on my website, placesiremembereleahlane.com, and keep making your own travel memories.